some more. Let me just pray briefly. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to his children. We thank you that you are a father who invests in his kids. We thank you that you are a Lord who has great plans for us. You have things laid in store for us that we can't see around the corner. We don't know what is to come, but you do. And we know that they are good things. As much as there may be obstacles, there may be tough times, there may be valleys on the journey there, we know the destination is good. And Lord, we trust in you. Thank you for speaking already. And we simply humbly ask that you will continue to speak in the next half an hour or so. To us as individuals in our own individual places, situations, circumstances, but also to us as a body, as Beacon Church, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we're going to continue in Genesis, uh, but it won't be long, and things are going to speed up a little bit now. Um, we're going to finish Genesis by the end of the year, before Christmas, in fact. Uh, ooh, two years through Genesis, and then we have other plans for the new year. Um, but uh, we're still in the story of Jacob at the moment. It's a bit of a rascal, isn't he? A little bit. We're going to read a tale about uh, his brother reappears on the scene. I'm going to read quite an emotional tale about two brothers. But something as I get older, uh, something I'm noticing more and more, recognising more and more, that in the media, in the press, in the papers, the things we see, conflict we see, and there's masses of it, isn't there? at home and abroad. Societal breakdown and conflict. Inevitably, it's always fractured relationships that are a core of all of those, isn't it? It's about people. Life doesn't just happen to you. There's normally reasons for it, isn't there? Marital breakdown, societal breakdown, international breakdown. There's conflict. Neither side, or at least one of the sides, not willing to back down. Not willing to lose position or possessions not willing to forgive, and just as importantly, not willing to repent. That's what's at the core of pretty much everything we see in our newspapers, isn't it? And here today, we're going to find another tale that dwells on that subject, that very subject. Family breakdown, reconciliation. And uh, what's interesting is last week is almost a companion piece to this, is a hinge point in the middle of this story that we're going to look at. So Barry shared about Jacob when he gets to wrestle with God. He comes face to face and cheek to jowl with God himself. And he walks away, in fact he limps away, a very different man. And so what we're going to look at today is the surrounding journey, the surrounding story to that point. That's why we did that, that part of the story first. I want to principally tell a story. I want us to, to walk this journey with Jacob. And we're going to follow this story leading up to the point when he wrestles with God and then see the repercussions after that moment. It's a tense story. It's a very beautiful story. And in many ways, it's a snapshot of the whole Bible. 
which we'll come to later. So far, we've met Jacob, who is a trickster, right from day dot. In fact, it was prophesied over him. The older will serve the younger. And during the birth, he snatches out and seizes hold of his twin brother's heel, doesn't he? And uh, he tricks, his, he manipulates, he tricks his brother out of his birthright. His brother being the older of the twins, his brother rightly so has the birthright on him. He has the, the future privilege of being the father for the people, father for the family upon their dad's death. That will come to him, the privilege of parental responsibility, patriarchal and priestly responsibility for the people, and also a double inheritance. He gets a double portion. Jacob, the younger twin, tricks his brother out of that. And then later on, we also find out that he tricks their dad into passing on the prophetic blessing, God's ordained favour, that should go to the eldest son, Jacob disguises himself. We haven't dwelt too much on that story, but Jacob disguises himself as his older brother and he receives that. Again, he's tricked his older brother out of what was his privilege. Later on, we find out his deception comes back to bite him on the bottom. So when he goes to seek a wife, he travels away, he flees, and he goes looking for a wife. He finds the lady he loves and his future father-in-law to become his father-in-law tricks him and he ends up with a wife he didn't want. He ends up marrying both girls and he ends up with a football team of children. Gets 11 kids by this point. And uh, via wives, maidservants and mandrakes. Listen to, listen to John's sermon about that again to find out what that was all about. And through possibly dodgy practices and against the odds, he still ends up highly favoured. God's grace upon his life. But all along he's the trickster. As, as Barry described him, he's like Del Boy, isn't he? Ducking and diving. Wheeling and a dealing. But now we've reached the point where God has told him it's time to go home. Uh oh. He does it because God told him to. And he flees. He doesn't tell his father in law where he's going, doesn't tell him he's leaving. He goes before he finds out because Laban's a bit of an interesting fella. So he gathers together all his family, all his people, and there's a big whole tribe of them, and they disappear. And it takes a couple of days for his father in law to go, Where's Jacob? Oh, he left. He's gone home. So his angry father-in-law chases him for a week. You can make a film out of this, can you? Chases him for a week. They finally meet. They have a chat. They finally part on good terms. That's chapter 31. But all along, he's still returning home and this breakdown with his brother is still lingering in the background. He's going to have to face the music, isn't he? So let's read... From chapter 32 of Genesis. Genesis 32 from verse 3. We just, we're not going to read all of this. There's a lot to read. We don't have time. So we're going to look at snippets. But uh, verse 3 of chapter 32. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, and stayed until now, I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favour in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. <laughs> Uh-oh. 
Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. He's terrified, isn't he? He's come to face the music and he doesn't like the sound of it. Picture it. You're Jacob. You're returning home. Memories inevitably resurface. He'd manipulated, he'd lied, he'd cheated, he'd stolen. They hadn't exactly left on good terms, had they? You're walking home, you know who's there. Terrifying, isn't it? He's going to have to face the music. Who doesn't have things they regret or they're embarrassed about? No hands have gone up. We all have those moments when sometimes we need to leave them with Jesus, we need to move on, but sometimes they still pop back in your head and you cringe. You think, I didn't do that, did I? Did I say that? Things that we are embarrassed about, we get that sinking feeling inside when they pop back in your head 20, 30 years later. Things I said to girls when I was learning the dating game, before I met, before I met Jenny, thank you. <laughs> Things I said to girls, it's like, idiot. Even now, pops in my head, it's like, oh, I didn't actually say that out loud, did I? Even those cringy moments, you can get that twist in your gut, you're like, oh, plonker. And yet, Jacob has got that and more big time. He's thinking, I can't ignore this. I'm heading home. I can't pretend it didn't happen. He's going to be there. What do I do? There's an elephant in the room, elephant in the desert. There's this cloud hanging over me that's not going to go away unless I do something about it. He knows that he, the deceiver, mummy's boy, is going to have to man up and do something about it. So what does he do? It's interesting what he just did, didn't it? Do you remember what he just read? Verse 5. I've got to face the music. I've got to make up for this. I've done wrong. And Esau's going to be there. So what does he do? He sends him a CV. Verse 5. Part of the message to Esau is, I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favour in your sight. Here's how many GCSEs and O-levels I've got. Here's, how, here's my university degree. And here's my diploma in knitting. I hope you're really happy and you're admirable of me and hope that wins you over. Is that going to work? What's he doing? He's panicking, isn't he? He's going, look, are you impressed? And then he tries something else, verse 7. When he hears that Esau's coming with 400 men, <laughs> he panics even more. So what does he do? Verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. He's on the defensive. He's fearing now for his own welfare, isn't he? So later on, in the next few verses, 9 to 12, I won't read them all out, but he prays. And what he does, he reminds God. He's almost trying to persuade God to send reinforcements. Remember the promise you, you declared over me. Don't you forget that because my brother Esau is coming after me. Help me out. He's asking for reinforcements. He's really panicking. And in verses 13 to 16, he actually sends a gift to his brother. Hundreds of sheep and goats and cows and donkeys, thinking that will win him over. I owe him a big debt. I'll make up for it with cattle. <laughs> but then, as we heard last week, 
He meets God. And if you remember what Barry was saying, the guy who has tried to be master of his own life learns to allow God to master him and trust him as he walks differently from that moment. It's a very, very, very powerful moment. It's more than just an, an interesting anomaly in the Bible where a man wrestles with God. This is an impactful encounter with the living God and he walks differently as a result. The guy up to this moment is panicking. He's in fear, he's on the defensive, he's trying every little trick in the book he can to persuade his brother to let him off and then he meets God. So we're going to continue reading in just a sec but before we do, I'm keeping on tenterhooks here. Just think about this, one extra thing. I love that we haven't seen Esau's reaction yet. The scene hasn't cut to the land of Seir and there's Esau receiving the letter and we're seeing what he's thinking. You can imagine him sitting in his favourite chair holding this letter thinking, looking at that ten flap at the horizon thinking, my brother, that piece of slime, what he did to me. And he's coming here and he's showing me his diploma in knitting thinking he's going to impress me and now he's sending me these hundreds and hundreds of cattle and donkeys thinking, I'm going to go, yeah, don't worry about it, forget it. Who does he think he is? He cheated, he lied, he stole my birthright. I was supposed to be the one responsible for our family when Dad dies. He took my blessing. Father laid hands on him and prophesied over him and not me. Who does he think he is? And two initial reactions would spring to mind to all of us. It comes naturally to all of us. Rejection or revenge. He could reject him, going, I'm not going to even speak to the man. Persona non grata, I'm going to pretend as if he didn't exist. I'm going to reject him, I'm going to ignore him, I'm going to let his phone calls go to voicemail. I'm going to delete his emails. I'm going to change my number so he can't get in touch with me. I'm going to reject him. That'll learn him. Nothing to do with me. He's not my brother anymore. Or he could seek revenge. He owes me big time. I want compensation out of this. Hundreds of cows and donkeys and sheep and goats. Thousands at the minimum. I'm going to take his kids on and make them my own. Raise them my way. I'm going to take all his servants... And any land he tries to take, I'm going to take it off him. He owes me big time. He could get revenge, couldn't he? So what does he do? Chapter 33. What does Esau do? And how is Jacob, the man who is now limping, walking differently? How does he respond? Chapter 33. This is literally just after the moment he's wrestled with God. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau was coming and the 400 men with him. So he, Jacob, divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, placing them with their parents, with their mums. And he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And it's one of my favourite words in the Bible, but... But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. 
and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favour in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favour in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please, accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. What a remarkable turn of events. We see here, we see Jacob bowing seven times on his approach to his brother. Contrasting with the guy who seized his brother's heel, who was the deceiver. Who was living up to the older will serve the younger prophecy. And he keeps calling himself servant. Later on in verse 14 he does it again, I'm your servant. We can see the change, we can see the fruit in keeping with repentance, can't we, that John the Baptist talks about. If you want to know someone's saved, if you want to know you're saved, look for the fruit. Does your behaviour match up to the words? Are you different along a journey? We see here, we see suddenly in Jacob, we see a guy whose fruit is in keeping with his repentance. Because he says in verse 10, in the second half, he said, For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Remember just a few hours earlier, he saw the face of God. When he wrestled with God face to face, cheek to cheek, he saw the face of God at Peniel. That's what it means. I saw the face of God. That's what that name means. That's why he called it that name. And So he's not just throwing out some naive, innocent phrases to win his brother over. He's saying, I saw the face of God. And in this moment, when I saw you, except to me the way you did, I saw the face of God. I see divine beauty. There is a divine beauty in reconciliation, in acceptance and in forgiveness. There is something that engages the heart when we see it. It tugs at us. And it's beautiful, is it not? See, our first inclination when we are wronged, is to withhold forgiveness, isn't it? We get angry. It's to reject them, to cause pain, to cause our own sense of justice and bring that about, to stick our nose in the air instead of our knees on the ground. And yet we can love those stories, the films when broken families come together at the end, when lovers have parted after a massive argument, but at the end they get together again. Films like Magnolia, where Tom Cruise, his character, is so angry for most of his life at his dad who abandoned him and his mum when his mum was dying. It's like, why should I forgive him? At the end, he brings himself to be able to do that. And people, when they watch this film, they weep. It's very powerful. It gets us. Even today, 20 years after Rwanda, or more than that, isn't it? 20 years after Rwanda, 
and the horrible massacres that occurred there. Even today, we can still see groups of Hutus and Tutsis coming together in reconciliation. And it tugs at us. It's beautiful. There's a divine beauty in reconciliation, isn't there? Even just in the past few weeks, I was reading an article about British troops who served in Northern Ireland having a cup of tea with IRA dissidents. And there was a beauty in the conversation. Reconciliation. It does take two to tango, of course. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And I know some here have tried, even in recent weeks, tried to reconcile with people. And it's been spurned. And it hurts. It does hurt. It does take two to tango. Even Jenny and I, just in our own family, there's someone we've tried to reconcile with in the past and it just backfired. At least we tried. We've just got to leave that with God. But we can't not try. But it's interesting. We can watch these films and read these books and just even cry when you're reading articles about reconciliation. The next day, someone wrongs us and we forget all that and we demand justice. (laughs) What's going on there? We do, don't we? And yet we see Esau's grace here. When his brother did what he did all those years ago, decades ago, he vowed, you can see it in chapter 27, he vows to kill his brother upon the moment of their father's death. When dad's dead, so I wouldn't do it before that, but when dad's dead, I'm going to kill him. That's his vow. And yet here, he receives his brother And as much as they go their separate ways, they live separately after this, but they reunite yet again upon their father's death and bury their dad together. There's a divine beauty there, isn't there? There's a lesson for us all today about forgiveness, about reconciliation, about acceptance and not rejection. We can all see the beauty in it. And I'll leave that for you to work out what that means to you. But... The thing is, we can't leave it there. There's more going on here. There's something else happening. Because I said earlier that this story is like a snapshot of the whole Bible. And it's fun sometimes trying to reduce whole stories down to get what is the essence of this story? What's the simple thread going on here? As much as the Bible has lots of simple threads, it's the Word of God. It's deep. But sometimes you can just understand what's the simple essence of what's going on here. For example, Pride and Prejudice. It's all about Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth and there's pride going on. He thinks no one's good enough for him. She thinks he's right up himself. But when they finally let go of their pride and their prejudice, they recognise how much they love each other. That's the story. Lord of the Rings is about the little people and the big people fighting for power. And it's only the victory is only secured when the little people are willing to destroy the key to power, not keep a hold of it. That's Lord of the Rings. That's the essence of Lord of the Rings. Batman is all about a billionaire with toys beating up people with mental health problems. That's all it is, isn't it? Think about it. That's Batman. The Bible, what is the essence of the Bible? We see it here. Think about this. Jacob is a man who has journeyed in sin. And what does he try to do about it? He recognises his wrongdoings. What does he try to do? He tries to make up for it with a CV and with gifts. His CV to try and impress his brother, his gifts to try and make up for the debt he owes. But then he meets God and he faces the music in true repentance. And when he does, what does he find? Grace and beauty. 
So then compare that to us. We are born in sin. The Bible says we are. We're not taught to do wrong. We have to be taught to do right. It's there. And sin isn't just the wrongdoing, the wrongful acts and the wrongful thoughts. They are just the fruit of a wrongful heart. Sin is our state, not just the stuff we do and don't do. We are born in sin and we, like Jacob, have journeyed in sin. And what do we try and do about it? We try and rely on a CV and gifts. Look, God, look what I can do. Look what I'm good at. Look at all the things I've contributed to the world. Look at the things I've achieved. Or gifts. I'll do this for you. Hopefully this will make up for some of the bad stuff I did. We too try and use a CV and gifts to make up for things in our life and in our hearts and in our thoughts. And yet, when we meet God and when we face the music, when we are truly repentant and we are humble before him and recognise who and what we are and that we cannot make up for it but that he can, what do we find? Grace and beauty. See, our CV and our gifts will never cross that cosmic bridge that is broken between us and God because of our sin. Jesus' CV and gifts are more than enough. His CV, his perfect life. He could stand before God as our perfect sacrifice and go, look at my life, sinless. And his gift of his own life that he was willing to give upon the cross for you and for me is more than enough for anything you have ever done, anything you ever will, anything you'll even consider. Jesus' CV and gifts is more than enough. And here's the punchline. Verse 4. When Jacob meets God, faces the music, is changed as a result, what does he see Esau do? Verse 4, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. The wronged party ran to him, embraced him and kissed him. Remember that? Because there's a story that Jesus tells in Luke 15 about a guy who despises his family, despises his father, asks for his inheritance early and goes away to spend it and live a life that he wants to live, following his own sinful thoughts and desires, living life his way. When he realises he's got it all wrong, he comes back home in complete humility. And the father who represents God, what does he do? Luke 15. And verse... 20. And he, the son, arose. This is the story that Jesus is telling. And he, the son, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. When we, the wrongdoers, meet with God, and recognise that our CV and gifts can't fix anything, and we're willing to face the music and let him have his way in us, 
we recognize that Jesus' CV and gifts is enough. What does he do? The Father runs to us and embraces us and showers us with kisses. Might sound weird and effeminate, but who has sensed God's kisses upon their life? Numerous times. You just... It's almost intangible, you can't always describe it, but in changes in circumstances, in miracles, in, in, in moments, even to be honest, this morning, God was speaking to us. He sings love songs over us, that's what his word tells us. When you turn around in repentance, you realise that the Father is running to you, ready to embrace you and kiss you. And you get the greatest gift of eternal life as a result. And this is why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, he says, we implore you, be reconciled to God. Don't miss out. Don't miss out. This morning, that was 2,000 years ago to the church in Corinth. The same thing applies now. I say to you in 2015, be reconciled to God. If you haven't, do it now. Jesus is enough. And you'll find a father who runs to you, who embraces you, kisses you, and won't let go. Let me just pray. Father, you are an awesome God. Lord, when we dig deeper and see what happens when relationships are healed, we see a divine beauty. But Lord, we see it in even greater, infinite capacity when we see the cosmic divide healed between God and man through what your Son has done upon the cross. Lord, we, Lord we're still scratching the surface to understand this. <laughs> but Lord, we see the beauty within it and we say thank you, thank you, thank you. Lord, if there's anything we need to do, perhaps even this week, in reaching out the hand of grace to someone, then help us to do that. If we need to repent, if we're the wrongdoers, then teach us to say sorry and to heal that wound. Or to receive the person who's been trying to say sorry to us for a long time. But more fundamentally, help us to cling to you through Jesus' CV and gifts all the more. That we might know you more. That you might be at work more in our lives. That they might testify to your glory. That others might come to know a Father God who runs to them, embraces them and kisses them. Lord, speak to us, we pray. In our precious, precious Jesus' name. Amen.